Hello. I'm here talking to Kendall. I'm here talking to Annie. Today I'm talking about the disappearance of Tina Fontaine, content warnings for child sexual abuse. And this whole episode is basically about the abuse and mistreatment of Indigenous Canadians. So if you're not feeling up for it, here's your warning. Sources are in the show notes. Everything's alleged, but this is definitely tell no one. Okay. We're talking about Tina Fontaine. And here's how how we begin. Mm -hmm. Her paternal grandfather was a residential school survivor in Canada. If you don't know, the Indian residential school system was a network of boarding schools for indigenous people, which was essentially cultural genocide um, and was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. Uh, The school system was intended to isolate indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and religion to assimilate them to the dominant Canadian culture. And over the course of the system's more than 100 year existence, around 150,000 children were placed in the schools And by the 1930s, about 30% of Indigenous children were believed to be attending the schools. The number of school-related deaths remain unknown, because they obviously didn't keep great records, but estimate um, from 3,000 to over 30,000. So her grandfather was a part of these schools. And lived. And lived, but he suffered severe alcoholism and became violent when he was older. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. They were like, you would board there. Did you have an option to go there or not? I mean, if you had like quote unquote option. Right, got it. You'd go there, be completely stripped from your your own culture. Yeah. And maybe die there? Absolutely abused, mm-hmm. at least verbally and physically, but like probably sexually as well. So this story is basically like, I don't want to say poster child, but like the word poster child. <laughs> for generational trauma Mm. of indigenous people Mm. in North America. So at the age of 12, Tina's father, Eugene, so this guy's son, uh, left his home in the Sag King First Nation, which is 121 kilometers. We're talking kilometers, but I'll say 75 miles northeast of Winnipeg, where he lived on the streets. He also developed alcoholism. Did he leave... Because the father probably was violent, yeah, yeah, got it. Twelve, yes, and I and he was basically just living like that for the rest of his life. Her mother, Valentina, was raised in Bloodvein First Nation, 160 miles north of Winnipeg, and starting at the age of six, she was removed and returned to her mother several times by the Manitoba Child and Family Services, and by the age of ten, she was taken from her family permanently. And after that, she was moved repeatedly and was sexually exploited by adults and started to use alcohol and drugs. Who fucking wouldn't? Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, so rampant, like throughout the community and and Tina's family, nuclear family and like reverberating out to the larger family. So her family is part of the Sad King First Nation. Uh So when her parents first met, her mother was a 12 year old in care like in the system. And her father was 23. Um, Child and family services records show that they knew their relationship was sexual and that Eugene had a past that involved violence and addiction. Um, And her 
mother's files noted that her mother would frequently run away from foster placements to stay with him. In 94, she described to her caseworker that she felt depressed, suicidal, isolated, alone, and unloved. So in the spring of 96, at the age of 14, she gave birth to her first child who was immediately and permanently taken from her by the Child and Family Services. Yeah, I like can't think of an, another way for that girl to be. You're being mistreated in literally every way I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And just like having come from unbelievable poverty and addiction. It's like it's an uphill battle to say the least. Yeah. So that's the context of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So Tina's born on January 1st, 1999 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. At the time of her birth, both of her parents were in recovery programs, but six months later, her mom turned 18 and like aged out of the state children's welfare system and stopped receiving or stopped having access to as many services because she wasn't a kid anymore, technically. Mm-hmm. And her dad is drinking again and being violent. So when Tina's one year old, she was removed from her family's care for the first time by CFS, Child Services. It happened again when she was two, after which she was returned to the care of her father after her parents separated. Uh, She lives with her father and his mother and is sporadically placed in foster care for a few days, like every couple months or years. So when Tina's five, her father places her and her younger sibling with her great aunt and uncle, Thelma and Joseph, through a private guardianship agreement after he was diagnosed with cancer. She calls them her grandparents, so I'm just going to refer to them as grandma and grandpa. Um, She lives with them for a while, and her dad visits them weekly. Uh, 2011, when she's 12, her father, who's 41, was beaten to death. What? Like a bar fight or something. He got in a fight with some people and died. His two assailants were convicted of manslaughter, and her grandma recalled that her father's violent death deeply affected Tina. Quote, she was very hurt, very lost. That's when she drifted away. And she was eligible for grief counseling, but it was not very accessible, so she never went. Mm. Her mother reaches out to Tina after his death, but they hadn't spoken in a few years, and they drift apart again. In a 2019 report, the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth noted that CFS was clearly aware that Tina was struggling in the period between her father's death and her own. I mean, spoiler alert. Records from the time document her being increasingly absent from school, missing assignments and being suspended, getting into verbal confrontations and physical fights, getting medical treatment for self-harm, and being reported missing three times. I mean, fuck, what can I do beyond everything to tell you I need help? Right. During this period, her family repeatedly asked for help from CFS. November 2013, Tina ran away to visit her mother in Winnipeg. CFS finds her there, but her grandparents don't have transportation to go pick her up. So she's housed at a youth shelter for two days until they can like get enough money to come and get her. We're talking about poverty that, like, I can't even... Yeah. To be real, like, I'm having a hard time um, getting it. Yeah, there's no money anywhere. You're not in vicinity with anyone with money. And, like, when when you're talking about how she couldn't go to her own therapy... Yeah, we'll get into it. I think I'll talk about it later, but I can't get there. And, like, a therapist nearby has a waiting list of six or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. there's no... It can't happen. 
April 2014, she's suspended from school for being under the influence of marijuana. So her grandma is constantly asking for help and services. And she ends up calling CFS asking for Tina to be placed in their custody for her safety um, because she's using drugs and talking to men online. And when CFS eventually calls her grandma back, her grandma tells them that she's missing right now. I don't know where she is. So they check her mother's house again in Winnipeg and she's not there, but she's eventually found at an extended family member's house 15 miles outside of Winnipeg. Her grandparents have a meeting with CFS on April 29th. Um, They have concerns about her missing school and talking to men online and like consistently just running away. She's also concerned about some self-harm stuff and a community mental health services referral was recommended. But like I said, she was never able to access it for many reasons. Mm -hmm. Tina returns home and meets with a caseworker on May 6, 2014. She discusses her problems and expresses interest in counseling They did not address her vulnerability to sexual exploitation or talking to strange men online at the meeting Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. So the counselor she was referred to, like I said, was 70 kilometers away from her home. And later the agency would say that they offered the family gas gas vouchers to pay for gas. Um, But Tina's grandmother denies that and said if they were offered that, they would have used them. July 10th, Tina's grandmother receives a Facebook message from Tina's boyfriend saying that Tina had gone to visit her mother again, and he had seen Tina and her mother using crack and Tina being sexually exploited by her mother. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Tina's mom, like I mentioned, had like been sexually exploited as a child and is kind of doing the same thing to Tina to get drugs and or money for drugs. Yeah. See, it's just a cycle. It's a cyclical thing. Yeah. By that time, her mom had lost custody of her other children as a result of her involvement in sex work and her alcoholism. So after getting this message, her grandma contacts Tina's caseworker, who then contacts her mother's caseworker, expressing concern about this. And the worker says that you should file a missing persons report. So between June 30th and August 17th, Tina's reported missing five times. The dates are kind of like shaky here, but I'm just going with what I saw the most. So Tina goes to a youth shelter between July 23rd and 26th, and then returns for an hour on the 27th and 28th. And on July 30th, they report that she didn't come home that night. So her bed was given to another kid. Um, They call hospitals looking for her. And on July 31st, she was reported missing to the Winnipeg police service. Her aunt later said that she had stayed with her during the August weekend of the first through the third. And on August 5th, Tina called her CFS worker and was subsequently picked up by members of CFS. We don't know where she was between August 5th and 8th, but she was listed as a missing person still. She presented at a youth center in the early morning hours of August 8th, but left shortly thereafter. And at 5.15 a.m. on August 8th, two police officers encountered her in a truck with a what they presumed to be a drunk driver with a suspended license as part of a traffic stop, but did not take her into custody, even though she was known to be missing. Okay. Why? Um, I kind of talk about it later. They say that sh- it was basically morning, so it wasn't like nighttime anymore. And that matters, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what can go wrong at six in the morning? But a drunk driver? Yeah. They like looked her up to see if she had a warrant. Well, at first she gave them a fake name. 
fine. And then they, I think she eventually gave them her real name and she looked, they looked her up to see if she had any warrants on her or whatever. She didn't, but they did not look her up in the missing persons database. And so they claim they didn't know she was missing, but they didn't know because they didn't check a 60 year old man and a 14 year old girl. Yeah. And like, we're clearly drunk. And if you're, if you feel weird enough about it, that you're looking up, if she had a fucking warrant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you felt weird about it. Yeah. But you didn't go to let me help her. You went to, can I get her in trouble? Yeah. So at 10 a.m. So she is pulled over at 5.15. At 10 a.m. She's found unconscious, unclothed from the waist down in an alleyway near the University of Winnipeg. She was brought to the Health Sciences Center for treatment. And while at the hospital, she mentioned to her CFS worker that she had been associating with a 62-year-old man named Raymond Cormier a.k.a. Sebastian. I'm not calling him that. She's call- she calls him Sebastian. <laughs> um, I don't know where that comes from. The man in the truck? Yeah. Okay, yeah. How did they... They pulled him over. Yeah. I don't know if he was arrested and she just started walking. I don't know. Okay, would love to know what the fuck happened there. <laughs> yeah. Do they have any um, footage of it? Like, do they have any... No. Okay. Do they have body cams in Canada? Yeah, know. I'm wondering that. She tested positive for amphetamines and cocaine and marijuana. How old is she? 14, I think. 14 or 15. Fucking child. Yeah. She denied being sexually assaulted and refused to have an exam done. But like, hey, everybody, we found her like half naked. You're right. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not realistic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean. I don't know what, what they could do if she didn't want any help on, on that front. But I don't like, think anything. To be clear, we all are like aware of what is going on here. Yeah. Okay. So her service worker calls the police and lets them know, like, this missing girl, she's at the hospital right now. And they go, okay. So they just delete the missing person's report from the system. After being cleared for discharge, she was checked into a downtown hotel placement where she um, was staying with like a service worker, caseworker person. Mm-hmm. But she left to, quote, meet some friends. And she told her worker she'd be back before 11, but she never came back. So after she leaves this hotel, her friend, 18-year-old girl who goes by Katrina, said that she saw her leave with the man who pulled over and asked her to perform a sex act for money. And then, Tina, goodbye. You're gone now. And then she said she, like, followed them a little bit, but lost sight of him eventually. And... Then Tina was reported missing again on August 9th. Okay. August 11th and 12th, her service worker is asking her family members if they've seen her. They haven't. And at around 1.30 on August 17th, a body was found wrapped in plastic and a duvet cover and weighed down with rocks in the Red River. The duvet cover had a distinct leaf pattern on it, and the body was identified as Tina's the next day. The police believe she had died on or around August 10th. An autopsy was unable to conclusively determine a cause of death. They noted she was 5'3 and weighed only 75 pounds. An x-ray showed no broken bones. And she tested positive for cannabis, but negative for other drugs. So the next day, the police hold a press conference about her death. And the detective who spoke was really emotional about it. And said something like, I think the community would be horrified if we had found dead puppies in the river like this. And acknowledged how cases like these were historically ignored by the media and law enforcement. And the public. Yeah. 
In the 30 years before Tina's death, more than 120 indigenous women were murdered or went missing in Manitoba. In Um, Manitoba. In Manitoba. A 2014 report by the RCMP titled Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women found that more than a thousand indigenous women were murdered over a span of 30 years. From 2001 to 2015, the homicide rate for indigenous women in Canada was almost six times as high as the homicide rate for other women. Kendall, like... Six times. It's like a genocide. Slow, like, slow-moving genocide. What do you think is, like, going into how often they're being fucking killed? I mean, yeah, you take everything from people, you make them fucking very vulnerable, and then what? Like, you don't really look into it when they do die? Yeah. And then people who would wish g- women harm are like, cool, you won't even, if I drive through the fucking reservation and pick a girl, yeah. you probably won't even look into it. Yeah. Fuck, and they're like dude. proven right. No, they're and they're like completely fucking right. Yeah. Yeah, I think most of the perpetrators are white people, white men. Okay. So 29 individual hairs were found on the duvet, but they did not have enough biological material to determine anything from them. It's also in water. So that ruined a lot of shit too. So the duvet was sold at Costco and Winnipeg's Costco stores sold just under 900 of these types of duvets and two were purchased and donated. They were able to track some of them, but some of them they obviously couldn't. And two were purchased and donated to a value village, which is like a Goodwill. Mm. Um, And a few people like returned theirs. Some gave them away to friends. Like it's kind of a mess. Yeah. I mean, how do you keep track of that? 900. And we're not talking about like a mom and pop shop. Yeah. We're talking about the Costco. We're talking about... The big box store, Costco. <laughs> but it is members only. Um, but Mm-mm-mm. So they're interviewing Tina's friends and family. One of her family members said that her and her mother argued recently because her mother was trying to get her into sex work. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of mentioned. I might cut this, but like... I think her mom is not on this planet. Like she is not here. Okay. So they look into her boyfriends who were like teens like her age Mm -hmm. um larry and cody they're both exonerated they weren't in the area had nothing to do with it so they get a tip from a man living at a halfway house called robert sango he was a former bank robber uh, and he's like in his 60s he said he have to be what an ancient thing to do right i'm like he's 120 (laughs) (laughs) he was sitting at a bus stop at 10 p.m on august 6th when a girl looking like tina like ran past him to a payphone nearby and she made a short call and then walked over to him and asked for a cigarette. He like laughed at her and was like, you're too young. I'm not giving you a cigarette. But then she just started crying and confided in him and introduced herself as Tina. I mean, by the way, 14, I don't know who who we need to tell, but like if you're 14, you look 14. Yeah. But she had to have looked even younger being that tiny. Yeah. She weighed 75 pounds. Right. Oh, my God. She had to have, like, appeared to be, like, fucking 11. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So she told him that she was hanging out with a girl and this girl's boyfriend in a house earlier that night. And then they went upstairs and left her alone with this older guy who became aggressive with her and, like, called her a whore. Um, And so she was freaked out by that. And he also stole a truck and... she ran to this payphone to report it to the police. That's what she was doing there. Wow. But now she's scared. This guy's like following her. 
So when she walked away from the bus stop, this guy, Robert, said, like, I'll watch you walk down the street, like, make sure no one's following you. Um, and he didn't see anything. And on August 18th, he sees her picture in the news after her body was found and calls the police and tells him this. That would be a very jarring interaction. Oh, my God. I talked to that girl one time. Yeah. But also probably kind of common in this area. I mean, when you hear that, you're like, shouldn't you have helped her more? But kind of, I don't know, for him, like, you're a man, like, Mm -hmm. you don't want to be like, well, get in my car or whatever the fuck. She's like, no. No. And then like, you're terrified of you, too. She's running from you. Right. Now my only (laughs) friend, I'm running from him. (laughs) Um, So the detective checks the phone records from the payphone, and they see that a 911 call was placed at 1018 on the 6th. It was a short call, and they could actually get the recording because it's 911. Mm-hmm. And Tina is heard on it reporting a guy named Sebastian, remember Raymond Sebastian, Mm -hmm. stealing a blue truck. And her family later identified the voice as being hers. What day are we on right now? The 10th? 6th. Okay. Okay. Meaning like that guy we ended up getting pulled over with on the 9th? Yep. um, Or the 8th, I mean. Yeah. We'd been involved with him for a little while. Yes. And creeped out by him and whatever. And, like, that was probably the stolen truck. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, Cody, her boyfriend, knew Sebastian because um, they both met him in mid-July. Early morning, he and Tina are just walking around, and this old man rides by on a bike with a muffler slanged over his shoulder. (laughs) A car (laughs) muffler. (laughs) Cody yells to the man that they're lost. The man stops and said, I am Sebastian. Okay. The scrap metal collector. You can stay the night in this empty basement in an apartment building that I know. And it holds up a screwdriver and says, I have the keys to the city. Well, he pries open the basement door. Um, and they do stay there. He returns the next morning to let them out and gave them $20 for breakfast. Um, and they hang out a few more times throughout the summer. So we know Raymond, AKA Sebastian. Okay. Kinda. I mean, like a month. We know him for like a month. How much can I know Raymond, the the scrap metal collector? Right. <laughs> as much as anyone knows him. Right. So one night, Cody and Tina follow him to a house near the Red River where he has like a tent in the backyard. Okay. Okay. Just go with me on this. <laughs> where are we at in time? July. We're still in like July. Okay. We're ba- we're getting the yeah the origin of of Sebastian, aka Raymond. Yeah. Um, so in the tent, there's like hunks of metal because <laughs> there was. You know what I do. <laughs> you know what I do for work. <laughs> um, blankets and pills. So Cody later brings the detectives to this tent. Amazing guy. Thank you, Cody. Tent is still there. So when they go to it, they interview the person whose backyard it's in. Um, her name's Tracy. Uh, and they're like, I don't know, Sebastian. But eventually they're like, oh, yeah, that's Frenchie. (laughs) (laughs) We're on name number four. (laughs) So it is Raymond Sebastian Frenchie. Okay. (laughs) She said she had felt she had like seen him somewhere um, living on the street and she felt sorry for him and let him stay in her tent and a tent in the backyard. But sometime in. If I come around <laughs> wondering about the guy living in the tent, you say, who? <laughs> you act like I'm crazy. Who? For not having the right name. name? Yeah. <laughs> How many people are back here, ma'am? <laughs> like, oh, that's Frenchie. You. you know who 
what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So yeah, he's staying in her tent, but sometime in July, someone stole his bike and he was so upset that he destroyed her barbecue with a hammer and she asked him to leave and he hasn't been back since. So they go to a scrap metal place where he like barters, I guess. I don't know. Does his business. And the front desk woman recognized their description. She's like, oh, that's Raymond. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so they finally get his real name, Raymond Cormier. He has an extensive criminal history. He had been in prison several times. He was homeless. He had some violent crimes on his record, like robbery and assault with a weapon. Uh, He had 92 convictions in total. Hard when, like, you don't want to feel immediately judgmental or wary of anyone. But, like, as a girl, like, I don't care if he is, like, appearing to be kind or whatever. Like, (laughs) he is, like, clearly... Gross? (laughs) (laughs) Not gross in, like, a homeless, like, sense. No, but in a way of, like, why are you hanging out with me? I'm 14. Right. That's what we mean by gross. Okay. Like, you can have a house and be gross. Usually they do. Right. Usually they do. Mm -mm. So they put out an alert for this truck that they think he was driving around with Tina in. Yeah. Basically. Um, And a gardener calls saying, yeah, my truck was stolen and it was filled with metal. And he, he would have been like attracted to that, like, like moth to a flame. (laughs) Oh my God. You had a truck full of metal. Not around Raymond. You don't (laughs) hide it. That would catnip her friendship. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not going to take it. Okay. (laughs) Um, how did they, when they pulled him over for drunk driving in the in that car, how the fuck did they not run it for, like... I don't know. It was stolen already. I'm still hung up on, if he was, like, drunk, why they let him go. Yeah. I don't With know how... With a kid in the car? Yeah, I don't know. But Are they did. Are you fucking okay? Yeah. So September 17th, an officer finds the abandoned truck. The driver's window was broken, and a man <laughs> with blood all over his hands was seen wandering around the truck. <laughs> I mean... He tried to bike away from the police, uh, but eventually just threw the bike at the police officers and tried to run. He was captured. Uh, he offered to tell them everything he knew, but insisted he had nothing to do with Tina's death. Okay. Several witnesses report seeing him aggressively like coming on to her um, and them having arguments like in the lead up to her disappearance. Two witnesses recognize the duvet cover as something he had. And according to the house tent woman, he always bought his blankets at Value Village. Where they had known, where they had known a few of those duvets that been donated. donated. Yes. So they don't get a confession from him, but they decide to try the Mr. Big Sting, which is huge in Canada. Basically, undercover officers befriend the suspect, confide to him that they're part of an underground crime syndicate. This takes like a while to like warm people up to this. And the big boss confronts the suspect with details of the murder they're trying to get a confession for and says, if he confesses, we have enough money and power to protect you from prosecution, but you just have to tell us. And if you lie to us, you'll never be part of the gang. And don't you want to be? And don't you wish to be successful? (laughs) (laughs) What a weird. It is illegal in the U.S. and Europe because it is so. Well, people will false falsely confess under this oh it's such coercion it's like kind of crazy that they ever use it wow and this specific plan that they want to do costs two hundred thousand dollars god damn it just torture him (laughs) (laughs) 
that's cheaper. I'm fucking kidding. <laughs> so they're doing this. They're putting in the work. But his statements are very vague. He never gives a clear or complete confession. He just kind of like says shit. He's also like a heavy meth user as well. Yeah, I can't imagine where... Well, the minute you told me like a car window all broken and him wandering around, I'm with like, okay, hands. we're not working with a full fucking deck. No, no. So I don't know that I would trust what he's saying. Um, da, da, da. Tina was buried on the Sacking First Nation land next to her father and a memorial was placed at the site of where her body was found on the first anniversary of her death. December 2015, Raymond was arrested and charged with her second degree murder. I'll get back to that in a minute. In response to Tina's death, the Canadian Human Rights Commission requested an inquiry into the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. The RCMP already had a study underway, which was completed in 2014. Um, yeah, a bit like, now do anything right, about like it. Like, how many times do we have to be like, it's a problem. Yeah. A really big problem. The biggest problem we've ever had. And like, don't come back in a year and be like, can you run those numbers again? Oh. They're getting worse. Yeah. Okay. What do we do now? Okay. Uh, the chief commissioner wrote, quote, once again, our hearts are filled with grief and sadness as we mourn the brutal and senseless murder of an Aboriginal girl. Tina must not disappear into the oblivion of statistics. Um, with the change in government in December 2016, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Hi. <sighs> But are we doing anything? Announced that a national inquiry titled Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls would be undertaken. My brother, you have to accept the numbers that have been given to you. Well, I mean, he is a hottie, but he did do that blackface. Oh my God, man, come on. I'm about sick of the Canadians looking down their noses at us, frankly. They're no better. I don't know. I don't know a lot about it. If you're Canadian, I'm write a, it. Look, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but all I know is these numbers don't look good. So his trial began in January 2018. A witness testified the last time he saw Tina, she was arguing with him, with Raymond, because he had sold her bicycle frame for drugs. So the thing about this is there's not uh, any evidence, really. Um, the Crown did not introduce any forensic evidence or eyewitnesses to directly link Raymond to Tina's death. And the cause of her death was still ruled undetermined. There was no DNA evidence or anything. There was no injuries, no strangulation marks, no evidence of sexual assault, no stab wounds, no blunt force trauma. They have no idea. They don't really have no idea how she died, which is a big problem in a murder trial. Yeah, I don't know. Could she have drowned? Possibly. They, they suggest that she was suffocated or something or drowned. Okay. Or overdosed, but she didn't have any drugs in her system. She only had marijuana, right? Yeah. So it's kind of circumstantial. Okay. And they did bring in some of his statements that were recorded during the Mr. Big operation. Why do we call it that? Because the big boss, Mr. Big or something. And because Chris Noth is always there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... What they did was they put Raymond in a bug department and they put an undercover police officer in the unit underneath. Who's Raymond? Raymond Spencer. I mean, <laughs> Sebastian. Frenchie? Yeah. <laughs> so they put a guy, okay, underneath. They recorded him saying he bet Tina was murdered 
so this is a, a meth guy. He this is a sentence he said. I bet she was murdered because I found out she was just fifteen. What? You bet? You? Huh? Like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. So um, they get another undercover cop to. Pre- you guys are just full of money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they get another undercover cop to pretend to be the girlfriend of the original undercover cop. The carry operation. <laughs> So they get an undercover cop to pretend to be the girlfriend of the guy living in the apartment below him. Too much. Too much money for a confession they don't get. And, like, put that money, like... Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, you're fucking joking, right? (laughs) You have to be... This has cost $200,000. Yeah, you're fucking kidding. Give that to a fucking shelter. Yeah. Yeah. So they pretend to get in a fight... And the guy goes up to Raymond and says, I just murdered her. Do you know anything about that? (laughs) And he's like, no, (laughs) that's it. That was the plan. No. Best and brightest, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So Raymond's lawyers argue that without a determination of the cause of death, it could not be known that she died as a result of an unlawful act. Yeah, I I hate it, but it's just not enough. And I think he probably did do it yeah i think any old man like that hanging out with a girl that young yeah people have reported him being fucking weird to her yeah you probably hurt her yeah but they can't at all prove that and you can't like lock him up right so he was found not guilty on february 22nd 2018 Mm. and in march the crown announced they would not appeal the case So after his acquittal, indigenous leaders in Manitoba criticized the government systems for not protecting Tina. I mean, I think that's a bit, I mean, mostly all of the problem. The entire issue? Yeah. Is that she was there at all. Yeah. Quote, we as a nation need to do better for our young people. Mm -mm. And for people that you've taken everything from. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn Bennett, the federal minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, tweeted... Tina's is a tragic story that demonstrates the failures of all the systems for indigenous children and youth on every level. We need to fix this. And a day after the end of the trial, over a thousand people marched in Winnipeg to honor Tina and support her family. On February 28th, 2018, the Justice for Our Stolen Children camp was set up on Wiscana Park in Regina. Is it Regina? Yeah. Okay. In Regina, in response to the death of Tina and an indigenous boy. The next month, political activist Indigo Arscott held a rally outside Toronto City Hall to voice outrage in memory of Tina due to Raymond being found not guilty of the crime. In March 2019, Manitoba advocate for children and youth um, services Daphne Penrose released a report documenting Tina's life and the shortcomings of the agencies that were meant to protect her. It's the whole thing's online. We could link it in the mm-hmm. show notes. Um, that's all. But obviously, this is, like, a huge fucking problem. And this shit happens, like, there's a bajillion Tinas out there. Mm -hmm. Like, either she was murdered because she was vulnerable, or she died because she was vulnerable. Like, she was failed from the moment she was born. And her mother was failed from the moment she was born. Mm -hmm. And it's because of the government of Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and the history of colonialism and genocide. Yeah. 
it's going to take a lot to um, remedy that. Yeah. I mean, hard to even talk about because it feels like, no, you need to change everything from the ground up. Yeah. And like you need to prioritize it. Yeah. Yeah. While we're on a very relevant topic. Yeah. We want to let y'all know this is something that we've been like intending to do from the beginning. Um, It's just makes sense to bring it up now. So in January 2023, and that point forward, we're going to donate 10% of everything that we earn on everything. So like Patreon or whatever is up and coming um, to at first, and we might keep it there, but our, our local native organization, which is actually the Abenaki, that's the land that we live on. So yeah, if you want to like look into whose land you're living on, if you're in the US or Canada, mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, maybe look into it. Read about it. Who knows? Take us away. Tell no one. Bye. Bye.